Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Kantar and Said Business School, University of Oxford. In each episode, we speak to industry experts about the changing landscape of marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Jane Osler, and I'm EVP Global Thought Leadership at Kantar. Our guests on the podcast today are the esteemed Philippe. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Thomas, who is Associate Professor of Marketing at Syed Business School, University of Oxford, and Graham Staplehurst, who is Thought Leadership Director at Cantar Bramsey. So welcome to both of you, and thank you very much for doing this. So it's been a bit of a time recently in the world of, uh, I guess, academia and marketing. Um, there's been some conversations in, in the press and at various conferences where our guest Felipe has recently criticized the work of Byron Sharp, um, who has said, among other things, that cross-media synergies were, were a bit of a myth. Um, and then the journalist and uh, academic Mark Ritson has also got involved in this discussion um, and is trying to point out that maybe both both of these academics are, are right. So it's really good to have you, Felipe, on, on the podcast today. Let's just start to dissect some of the things that you've said and some of the things that you think Byron Sharp talks about that you, you take issue with. And then we'll have a sort of Cantar point of view on some of these things as well. First of all, let's start at the top, though. So we've got a bit of a divide potentially going on between the world of academia, possibly, and marketing practitioners who have to deal with decisions on a day-to-day basis. So what is the tolerance for complexity among both? Um, hi, Jane, and thanks for having me. But yeah, um, I think it, you're, you're cutting straight to an important division or difference. Um, and at the level of analysis that we might be trying to address one question or another. Um, I think you, if you look at the, the practice, and this is not, again, a global view of the totality of practice because there's also a nice split of different kinds of practitioners and depth of expertise across practitioners as well. Um, but you see a tendency, I guess, of oversimplification, um, or at least I see uh, a tendency towards oversimplification in practice, uh, falling, you know, two simple rules, five laws, this one single thing, all you need to do is X, um, which I think is, it can be rather frustrating. Um, one tendency I'll use an, as an example, um, 
is once a new idea is introduced, that previous ideas get lost as if they don't longer matter. Um, and that attention is, I think, the harmful side. I think you, you would have seen something, um, in recent marketing memory. I think Les Binet, uh, did an interesting presentation about the value of the information in search results, for example. Um, it was an interesting bit of work. And then for weeks after LinkedIn was going on about how you can drop off every other KPI and measure only search results, um, which he never said, and I think frustrated him in all means, but it's, it's that whole thing of here's additional evidence, here's additional information, it doesn't invalidate everything else that has come along. Uh, so that narrowing is kind of one of the problems. So as an academic, though, um, how do you handle all of this complexity in your work, in the analysis you do, in all the data that you look at, but still communicate it in a relevant and, you know, understandable way for a, a broader audience? Yeah. How do you do that? So, yeah, it's a it's an interesting challenge. So we, even academics, we cannot account for all complexity simultaneously all the time when we're going to make a proof or when we're going to examine a very specific narrow part of the marketing ecosystem. Um, we hold things constant. We make assumptions. We kind of control the environment to see how one small change affects the whole. Um, so we also simplify the world in order to understand and prove specific things. Um, I think the difference goes back to the original point that I try to make in this is the, I'll call it like the schema, but like the mental map that you have of how my marketing function functions doesn't get deleted because you've got a new piece onto your map. So what we try to do is saying we're proving that this road exists, but the rest of Google Maps is still there, right? Um, we're finding a shortcut, but you still have a good representation of all of those moving pieces. Um, that's what we try to do. And then when we communicate, um, we try to, I guess, simplify and trying to use analogies and just go, here's how you can think about this. Um, it becomes this transferal of maps. I have a mental map of all these things that have been proven to be true. Let me give you my map so you can update yours. So you know how the pieces happen. You might not need all of the pieces all the time, but at some point, somebody's going to ask you to get from point A to point B. So having that knowledge will be important, even if you always are on the same kind of journey day in and day out, and you don't have to have that knowledge. At some point, you might have to draw on that. So that's that's my analogy for for the moment. Um, mental map. Okay. Yeah. So there's so the point there about sort of complexity and also the constant sort of movement and dynamism in in the marketing world I guess let's just focus on um, something a piece of work that you've done with us the abnormal returns project looking mm -hmm. at uh, some brand Z data and I'll ask Graham to comment on this as well there's obviously lots of complexity in the mathematical models you know and the tools used sort of behind that work but how does what does that translate into for the ordinary marketer at everyday actions um, what does that project look like for them? Right. So the for the complexity aspect itself, like it is, let's say, of lower value for them. But what it gives you is the fact that we've accounted for that complexity. There's um, trust 
that this has been thoroughly tested and accounts for all aspects of the totality. You know, we're speaking about truth of what we've seen because we've accounted for everything. Essentially, we've we've absorbed the complexity. Um, so say, well, what about this? What about my industry? What about my region? What about this time period? Is it different than this? It's all been accounted for, right? So that's us ingesting and dealing with that complexity matters. That what about changes in uh, trading behaviors? Uh, because the financial markets have adapted over years in how they actually buy and hold versus day trading. We've accounted for that. So do they care? No. <laughs> like At the end of the day, a manager is not going to go through each inch and detail that um, we've worked through, uh, even with Graham, on every aspect of brand measurement and financial measurement to see how they integrate. All of those, that, that can be left. Like just say, look, the experts have accounted for it. They've taken these things in consideration. Uh, but then you can essentially have confidence and make your investments with the belief that these results will replicate. So they can make managerial decisions on the back of quality results because we've accounted for all of the potentialities. Okay, thank you. And Graham, do you have anything to add to that? How, how do you see this as complex academic work translating into marketing uh, action? Yes, I think, I think there's a couple of, of, of points there. Um, I love that Felipe has, has brought up the subject of trust. Um, trust sounds uncannily like faith and, and, and science isn't about faith. Um, but there still has to be trust. Trust that um, we have been thorough. We have been objective, um, uh, you know, and, and, and that we are not going to bend the data to suit our hypotheses. Um, I've been working this year on validation of, of uh, brand equity metrics that Kantai uses. Um, and, you know, we've gone from a position where, you know, we would have said initially, well, we have this small evidence base and it's, it's, it's linked to, you know, Kantar World Panel evidence. So that's still Kantar. So can I trust that? So somebody external, a marketer looking at our evidence might have said, oh, I don't know if I can trust that. Um, because you're a you know commercial organization and you've got self-interest. But now we've done a much broader validation. We've got 1,600 brands. We've, we've compared our data not just to Kantar World Panel, but also to Nielsen data and, and so on. So we've been able to show that our brand equity measures have real-world outcomes in terms of you know, volume share, in terms of value share and 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 in terms of of pricing, and the work that Felipe's done with the Side Business School has been really useful as a further uh, confirmation of the work that we've been do doing to say brand equity has real world implications and that it helps to create a, a range of different types of value for businesses, and that's reflected in businesses with strong equity having better. Uh, returns. Okay, so so we've spoken about complexity. We've spoken about sort of dynamism um, in the market, and I think one of your points, Felipe, was that uh, Byron Sharp hasn't been necessarily um, taking dynamic effects of of the market into account. Can you explain a little bit more about that? What what, what do you think he's ignoring, and what do you think should be taken into account? 
Right. So um, we'll say there's two aspects of dynamics here um, that we'll focus on and, and think about. One is very, very long term dynamics in that society changes over time. Right. So uh, we can talk about reliability of marketing ideas um, that existed in the 80s and whether consumers and consumer behaviors and preferences still apply today. Uh, and we can talk about how those are persistent or not. Um, that's one aspect. Right. The other one's much, much smaller dynamic, which is, let's say, is there a change between today and tomorrow? <laughs> Um, are you explaining a level of something? Are you explaining your size or are you explaining your change in size? That very small dynamic. Um, and that second step is where I'll, I'll start and concentrate, which is, can you explain why things move, why things change, or are you holding them constant, you know, static in the universe so you can explain something else about the world? Um, so, uh, the the book that Byron Sharp wrote is not an academic text. It is not clearly defined, and I can't just say, oh, I know exactly what he's doing. All I have is my interpretation of what he did because it's kind of vague. Um, but it relies on the work of Andrew Ehrenberg, who has published this work, and it is not vague, and it is very explicit of what it's doing. So I have to kind of use that bit of, oh, I know the basis of this model. Um, and that work explains the, the world and behavior of shopping, um, brand selection as a func function of static, stable market shares, right? So if you're saying, which is cool, like people that, you know, big brands get bought more often uh, for, you know, double jeopardy, all of that good stuff, as long as you have that nice static market share. Um, that's the issue that I have when you take that output and you say, good, now I'll explain how to grow this market share. You can't do that because your basic assumption about the world is that that number would not change. There's no strategy that comes out of that that you can talk about changes in market share because in order to get the result, you had to keep the market share stable, static, unchanging, and undifferentiated. So it's kind of like, one study on the behavior of buyers in a commodity market that is stable uh, was used to create a law about dynamics in a highly diversified marketplace. I disagree with that notion. Um, and I think that's one of the issues that has come to the fore, as it were. So it sounds like you're, 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 you're leaning towards a, the point of view where actually the sort of dynamic models of the marketing world need to be taken mm -hmm. into account, but actually they have to change all the time. So it's quite a lot of work for marketers to keep on top of all of this. Um, Graham, do you, do you think there's anything in that? Sorry, Felipe, did you want to say something? Yeah, just a, a quick response, because I think I, I can make a, a, a good example of how you could arrive at this logic by looking at this data and data that Graham would have seen as well. So I'm curious to his reaction. But if I have a static um, and I'm looking at just market, I'm just explaining market shares, but not difference in market shares. Um, the largest share companies would be large, large commodities, mass market brands. Those who have very large marketplace existence because they are 
by definition, mass market companies. And you would say, hey, if you don't differentiate and you become mass, you get large. But that's not true. Large brands, mass brands are undifferentiated by function of being mass. That's not the strategy. That's an outcome. Mm -hmm. um, how do I go from being a small brand towards a bigger brand and how do I grow has nothing to do with that potential. It has to do with your ability to differentiate and outcompete. Those yeah. are the differences. Static versus changes in. So Graham, what, what do you have to say to that? I think, you know, it's absolutely true that there are some stable factors in consumer decision making and the choices that people make, because our brains actually haven't changed that much. Um, and so the sorts of things that appeal to us um, and behavioral science uh, over the last 20, 30 years has taught us a huge amount about, you know, sort of how the brains store information, what they do with information, how we use it uh, to make fast or slow decisions. So all of those things are, are very, very unlikely to have changed since the 1980s or, or, or even the 1950s. Um, and, you know, we still have advertising. <laughs> Let's, you know, it's like it's not like all advertising has stopped and people have said that doesn't work anymore. So, yes, I think that there are some underlying things that we can um as marketers and as uh, as Kantar giving advice to marketers, we can absolutely rely on. Um, but of course, the world around us has gone through some changes that, you know, um, whether that's, you know, creation of an entire new online world and, uh, you know, and, and channels to market, so on and so on. Lots and lots of, of, of new things emerging in the world, but all they are are new ways to, um, push on those well-known unchanging levers of how our brains are operating, what we're looking for and what we want to choose. So with that, can we move on to the topic of um, differentiation? Because I know that seems to have been a source of contention as well. And again, I think it probably comes down to rather than a dramatic point of view of difference, like, you know, belief in differentiation or not, it's probably to do with the subtlety of how it's explained. Um, but um, Felipe, what is your point of view on differentiation? What, what benefits does that have for brands? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, I mean, it's, it's one of the main integral components um, or subcomponents of brands. Um, if you're going to 
think about, as Graham mentioned, like the, we know about how the memory stored and um, how we access that. Um, when you put consumer choice in that competitive scenario of do I pick product A, do I product pick product B or candidate one versus candidate two, um, there is a very important mechanism that comes from your ability to stand apart and differentiated um, from the competition in a area that is important and relevant to that consumer, um, that is valued by that consumer, right? So the, the strength of that differentiation uh, has given rise to points of parity, me too strategizing and how to erase your competitor's advantage by removing any valuable differentiation that they have. Um, that's the play interplay of the competitive aspect of, of marketing and how you win choice where all else would have been kind of, I'm ambivalent between A or B, I'll just pick whatever's on promotion. Um, this is part of that, um, that is going to drive the important behaviors around choice that we're desperately interested in. Graham, what, what do you say to that? Can, do you think brands can be both different and distinct? Because there's, there's, there's an important nuance here, isn't there? Yes. I mean, like any word, you can define either of those terms as you wish. Um, to be useful to people, um, at Kantar, we've come up with a, a very simple way to separate those two concepts, you know, that difference is the intangible um, aspect of a brand in which the memory uh, you have, the, the, the collection of connections mentally you have to that brand are not the same as the collection of mental connections you have to another brand. Distinctiveness is much more the tangible physical aspect of the brand. Um, and you need both, actually. There's a little bit of chicken and egg in all of this because marketers on the whole are smart people. So if they've got something different about their brand they're good at um uh, you know communicating that putting that forward as part of the offer that they make to consumers but then when they're doing that when they're creating the identity of the brand and the communications for the brand and so on um they think oh let's create this new element that no one has used before or nobody has used in this way and you know, that will link to those mental connections. So we, we link the physical to the mental associations of the brand so that if you see a physical property of the brand, it triggers the mental associations. Conversely, if you're thinking of the brand and want to find it, you're triggering the distinctive assets that that brand has. And I think that, you know, in that interplay of the two sides, what's most useful is distinctiveness and difference. Felipe. Yeah, just wanted to point out an interesting and different treatment that you've given this than the general discourse that we experience. What you've shown is nuance and understanding <laughs> um, and not saying that we now abandon one because the other is necessary, right? Um, and we can start talking about how much contribution do I get to my performance by changes in one versus changes in the other? How sustainable and long-term are the gains in changes in one and the other? And at no point did you say, 
abandon all ideas of differentiation. All you need is a, you know, distinctive product things. Mm -hmm. Differentiation, it, it's a higher level construct. You're talking about something that's talk is strategic positioning of, of the product in the marketplace, in the mindset of consumers. Um, it leads to at best uh, temporary competitive advantage. At some point, somebody will try to diminish that advantage that you've created by reducing your points of differentiation. Distinctiveness, that physical component, uh, how uh, unique and preferred are the elements of your brand and how it's presented in packaging, coloring, logo type, slogan, all of those things. Those are very tactical considerations. And if you're saying get rid of your strategy and just playing tactics, you're leaving ability and money on the table. And that's really concerning because you've reduced your playground from a massive amount of opportunity into very low level execution. And part of like what has informed this in my research is that differential impact, right? The amount of money and the lift that you get from one is vastly different from the other. When you go into these conversations that are saying, all I need is distinctiveness. That's a mistake. You don't abandon it. You don't say like, this doesn't matter. No, you protect your copyright. You protect your colors. That will help trigger things on the shelf. But you don't just pretend that your product is the same as everybody else and not care. Yeah. At the core of what we believe, you know, helps people choose brands at Kantar is this concept of meaningful difference. And that's what exists in people's brains. It's not enough, as Felipe has said, just to be different in a distinct sense. You know, I can invent a new product tomorrow and using, I don't know, uh, a, a purple elephant as a mascot and become very distinctive. But unless there are some relevant associations, mental connections to that in people's heads, that's not necessarily going to make them any more likely when they recognize me on shelf to choose me or when they see my advert on the internet or whatever. So I think absolutely we need to have both of these things. The other thing that's been sort of lost a little bit in the discussion for me has been the idea that difference isn't an absolute, it's a matter of degree. And in some markets, you can achieve a lot of differentiation. In others, as Felipe has said, it's much harder, it's much easier for um, other competitors to match you. So in supermarkets, you know, it's very easy um, for one supermarket to match the pricing of another, to match the range being offered and so on. Um, so, you know, those, you know, simply trying to differentiate yourself on those grounds is much harder. And, and, and that's why those sorts of brands will have looked historically and successfully at other areas to differentiate themselves through emotional connections, for example, through more intangible things that are much harder to copy. Um, throughout this whole conversation, a couple of brands have been in my mind, and it, it, obviously it's much quoted, but Nike, for example, you know, wouldn't be the same without its distinctive asset of the swoosh. Um, and, you know, those three words, just do it. But the associations behind those things, the connections, mental connections, whether it's to athletes, to equality, to self-empowerment, um, uh, to 
you know, rewarding oneself um, to prestige, uh, to Olympics and so on. Yeah, a whole range of things. Um, that is why the swoosh and the three words work. Brilliant. Okay. Um, I just want to move on very briefly to the topic of media synergies because um, another sort of spat seems to have broken out about um, Byron Sharp claiming that synergies or cross-channel cross synergies are a bit of a myth. Um, now, I, I was a bit puzzled by that because um, our work actually proves in ROI that um, quite a lot of campaign ROI performance, um, about 35%, actually comes from the different synergistic effects, which are related to synergies in reach, um, synchronicity in the, the timing of the campaign and the channels used, and, and also in creative synergies as well. So, Felipe, can we just briefly have uh, your point of view on synergies? Because I know you've done some work on this as well. Yeah, um, and, and this is, I guess, how I got brought into this conversation in the first place around this comment of, you know, synergies not existing or being mythological, um, which is, again, equally puzzling to me. Uh, and I think that's where my quote that has appeared elsewhere um, ha has come from is, uh, we have proven the existence of cross-media effects and media synergies and media mix kind of importance uh, for well above, you know, 60 years. Like this is not a controversial statement. This is not my research. This is not Felipe has an opinion. This is literally marketing academia and hundreds of professors have spent a lot of their time to show all of the various ways in which media combines to create abnormal benefits, um, synergistic benefits, uh, even down to very recent consumer behaviors like watching a television show while you tweet about it um, and the joint consumption and seeing an ad on Twitter while you're watching a show on television. There's great work uh, out of folks in Emory at the moment on that. Uh, so it's just like, we know these things exist. Like it, it, this is baffling in how not controversial it is. Uh, questioning the idea of integrated marketing comms is strange to me in that sense. Um, what we have done recently, um, there's a, a white paper out. It's currently under review. Uh, so I'm, um, in peer review. So it's slightly dangerous. And <laughs> now the reviewers might know who, who wrote the paper because it's blind otherwise. Um, is the, um, we've looked at more than dyadic relationships, more than one to one relationships. So if you account, like you, you think like just running radio while running Facebook help radio's performance? Does it help Facebook's performance? Is that an abnormal kind of aspect? Um, and we looked and we have way more complex uh, combinations, um, you know, triads, quads, pentuples, et cetera, just going all the different possible ways that media can combine to generate disproportionate uh, returns and lifts uh, in long term as well. We're looking at brand outcomes. Um, and even at the moment, uh, actively doing work on kind of follow up that where I have 72 different touch points that we're looking at how they combine uh, in complex and interesting ways. Uh, so there's it's an important kind of area of work, but the premise of does it exist is not in question. 
the last thing I was going to touch on was actually a quick question for both of you. And I'll start with you, Graham, which is, um, so we've seen a bit of the, you know, the fight of the, the faculties breaking out, breaking out here. And that's kind of spilled over onto LinkedIn, which is uh, LinkedIn, perhaps not known for nuance and um, attention to detail, because obviously everything by necessity is reduced to a, a quick soundbite or kind of... Um, you know, showing off. So, um, Graham, how is the best way that we can bring all this subtlety and nuance of, of content, do you think, to, to marketers? The, the, there was a fantastic quote um, in Felipe's recent article, which is that he says, there's money in complexity. And I think the one point that I would put across to um, marketers is don't look for simple answers. Um, if your brand was that simple, um, it would be worthless. You know, the, the most valuable brands in the world today that we measure on Brand Z um, are very complex things. And that complexity is no accident. It's that complexity that makes them hard to copy. It makes them, you know, intriguing and interesting. Uh, it allows them to be, you know, always refreshing themselves um, and gives um, that value to consumers and it creates value for the business. So it's win-win. So our job at Kantar is very much trying to uh, embrace the complexity, uh, but convey it in ways which are manageable for our clients uh, and actionable. Felipe, what do you have to say to that? What do you think the best way to communicate this complexity might be yeah, from an academic um, point of view? Yeah, thank you. So the uh, I'd start like, if you're, you know, if you're on LinkedIn looking for advice, looking for insights and those things, like it's start paying attention at how you're going about it. And are you starting on the deep end of complexity? Um, nobody has started on the deep end of complexity. People have built to the end this and this and additional, right? Like it's a building process. Nobody likes to boil an ocean as it were and solve all problems simultaneously. Um Back to my original point is as you start your journey towards more and more complex understanding of your competitive environment, don't abandon old ideas when new ideas are introduced. Um, ask yourself, how do they relate? Uh, what's their role? Um, how much novel information is in this measure, this insight? What's the cost associated with it? How often can I get this measure? Is it, is it managerially useful? Right? Um, am I giving you a one time a year measure for that's really cool, but you make your decisions weekly? That's not a good measure for you um, at all. So, like, it, that's that intelligent consumption of advice that you get. Um, on the academic side, it's it's not honestly, it's not a debate. Um, I know how it gets posed and organized. Um, it, it's not a fight. Uh, there's nobody, and here, like, I, I'm not even sure I should, I, I don't think I am part of the story. Uh, in the grand scheme of things, I'm irrelevant uh, compared to the science and the insights. Uh, I was describing other people's work, right? Uh, things that we know. The thing is, we have our own mechanisms in academia to prove, disprove, and move the science forward. So if somebody has a model, that disproves everything that I said, they will publish it in an internationally regarded FT50 listed journal 
uh, which is going to send shocks through my world because, you know, the one that I quoted has like 26,000 citations. Uh, so 26,000 different papers have used that model. Um, so that will exist there. We have our own arena for that. Um, and then people like me will come back down and say, you know, not come back down, but they'll come back to this environment and say, Hey, here's the new knowledge. Here's how we update these models. Here's what works better. But for now, you can let the academics deal with their stuff um, in a different corner. You've been listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit Kantar.com or OxfordFutureOfMarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.